This week on Medical Minefield, Dr. Tony Goldstone, Associate Professor of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. My patients, I'm crying out to give them brigade. For many of my patients, I don't have another treatment for them. We have very few drugs for obesity that work. And Dr. Asha Lamy, GP and fat activist. This is massively stigmatizing. This conversation and the conversation around semaglutide is actually making life a lot harder for people with bigger bodies. Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Ethan Ennels. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're talking about semaglutide, also known as Ozempic or Wegovy. Could people of a normal weight soon be given it to help them beat addictions? And would that be a good thing? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. So Wegovy was approved by NICE for weight loss in the UK in February and uh, it caused big news with lots of people very excited because trials have shown that if you take Wegovy or it's also known as Azempic when it's branded for use in diabetes that you lose about 20% of your body weight without really trying. There's been some very good clinical trials done over the last few years and I became aware of the drug about a year ago at a medical conference in which a packed audience was told about all the benefits and the fact that they reckon that people basically will need to stay on this drug for life, but it cures obesity, the neurological disease of obesity that causes people to overeat. It interacts with part of the brain or interacts with chemicals that signal to part of the brain to make us hungry, stops us from being hungry, and therefore we lose, we lose weight. There has been a stampede, understandably, over the, over the last 18 months, two years for this medication since this news has been leaking out. People see it as the holy grail of, of dieting, something that was shown in clinical trials. No matter what you did, people would lose weight. So you didn't have to exercise. You didn't have to tell people to eat well. You didn't have to support them with nutritional advice. You always got the same weight loss result. Obviously, celebrities have started taking this Kim Kardashian was supposed to have taken it to fit into Marilyn Monroe's dress at the Met Ball last year the hype machine is real what are your thoughts on it I can't wait to get it come on seriously would you take would you take something like that listeners Ethan is is in no way overweight but everyone could be a bit slimmer couldn't they but it's not going to do that so if you took 20% off your weight what would that mean but I thought it reduces your appetite yeah, but in the studies, it shows that you're going to lose 20% of your weight. So that's going to be a few pounds for you, isn't it, really? But if it's just reducing your appetite, I think everyone could do with reducing their appetite just a bit. You say that. I, I know you're you're being slightly provocative here. I don't so... think I am. I'm being definitely serious. Okay, here. okay, you're being serious. Well, you yeah. can buy it if you want to. You can you can go on one of these uh, ridiculous I know. I websites. They where I could find it. They called Hims and the ones that sell the erectile dysfunction and yes. hair loss drugs. They yeah, also yeah. sell this. Everything which makes you anxious in life, you can get. Yes, you lose weight, be less bald, have a fantastic stiffy. <laughs> <laughs> It's basically your be a man starter pack. I was wondering what word you were going to use there. <laughs> okay, so interestingly, there seems to be other 
effects of this. So it doesn't just stop you craving and enjoying food. It also, as patients seem to be reporting, stops you from desiring other things like alcohol or smoking. Shopping. Shopping as well. Compulsive shopping. Some people have said they've stopped biting their nails. That's crazy. Or other compulsions that some people have, like uh, scratching or picking their skin as well, that they've stopped doing these things. So it seems that by targeting the bit of the brain that makes you crave foods and that desire that makes you want to eat past the point of being full, by targeting that bit of the brain, somehow they've or may have come up with a treatment for addiction and bad habits overall. I mean, it's incredible. Sounds like great news to me. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm definitely serious. I mean, that would be incredible. I mean, these are things which blight people's lives and also blight our medical system. If we could sort them out with a simple injection, the country would be a hell of a lot richer and a hell of a lot healthier. Well, quite. And there are studies coming out at the end of this year that will show that it can prevent heart attacks, strokes, of course, big weight loss in people who are overweight, very overweight is going to make people healthier in general. So we could see a situation where this is at least as rolled out as something like statins. Statins for slimming, they call it. And would that be a good thing if everyone was on long-term medication to stop you from being ill? Some people seem to think this is a bad idea. There seems to be a bit of a genre on the more right-leaning podcasts at the moment, like Megan Kelly, for instance, inviting on doctors to say how dreadful Ozempic is and all the negative consequences. I had a good scour before we did this podcast to see if I could find anyone credible in the medical world who had negative things to say. And, and I really couldn't find a wealth of people. Mm. We've got Ashalami on later, who's very passionate about this subject and, and has some very interesting things to say about their concerns on the, the validity and, and the, the biases mm. that might exist within the research, which I think is an absolutely fair point. So before we go any further, let's talk to someone who's very interested in this drug and believes that it is a worthy development and something that many people could benefit from. Joining us now is Dr. Tony Goldstone, Associate Professor of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. Thanks so much for finding some time to join us. We're talking today about semaglutide and the unexpected benefits that some patients are reporting in that they seem to inadvertently or unexpectedly be giving up their bad habits, anything from smoking to even nail biting. It could mean that this is a drug that could have much wider applications and be taken by people of a normal weight to help them beat addictions. And and this is something that's interested you. Am I right? Yes, it's something we've been interested in for quite a while now. We've known for quite a while that this GLP-1 hormone, which is the hormone on which these treatments are based, these, these are sort of different versions of that, that hormone that have been used to treat diabetes and obesity. And we've known for quite a while now that in animal models, that they not only reduce the consumption of food and particularly high calorie foods, but they also reduce the consumption of drugs of abuse like alcohol, nicotine, cane, opiates. Have we seen any research into humans that has shown things like, you know, I mean, did GLP-1 drugs help people quit smoking or anything? Yeah, there's a few studies. There have been at least two trials of the GLP-1-based drugs in ex-smokers and they have shown that they are more likely to quit, about twice as likely to quit as those that had a dummy injection. They've also gained less weight 
um, when they've quit smoking. And obviously that's therefore another reason why people may be able to quit longer term as well, because they're not so worried about the weight gain. So, I mean, it's all quite preliminary stuff. Is there a, a search now in the scientific community to, to kind of firm this up? Are people really investigating now whether it could be an anti-addiction drug? And, and how much hope is there? Yeah, there's one a study planned in the States at NIH to study the long-term effects of semaglutide in people who are alcohol dependent. There may well be other studies uh, in smoking. I'm not aware of any planned studies at the moment in other addictions like opiates and cocaine, but that may be the case. Because basically the same circuitry, this reward circuitry that's involved in food, and you know we have appetite, we also have pleasure from food, and, and they sort of tend to work together. And basically that circuitry has been hijacked by drugs of abuse. So many things that will affect our consumption of food will also affect our consumption of drugs. And actually, several medicines we've tried in the past for obesity actually came from drugs that were developed for smoking cessation and potentially vice versa. But we have to be a little bit careful because obviously there is a concern that people don't find things pleasurable anymore. Is there a worry that actually what we call anhedonia, the loss of pleasure, is a problem? Because obviously, if we no longer find things that are pleasurable, that could cause difficulties. Doctor, what other side effects have we seen with this drug? And are they severe enough that we should be cautious about rolling this out to a wider group of patients, say kind of hundreds of thousands or millions? So obviously, there isn't, there isn't any drug that doesn't have the potential for some side effects. So we always need to be cautious. So we know that these drugs can cause nausea, abdominal discomfort, lose stool, occasionally vomiting that is minimized by starting with low doses and building up very gradually over several months. And that usually helps the problem and any symptoms they have are usually mild and are temporary. Dr. Goldstein, one of the main objections to this drug isn't necessarily that it's got bad side effects, but that it absolves people of responsibility and people criticize the idea that we're going to be medicating a large group of people that really should essentially have improved their diets and therefore lose weight and it will no doubt be equally controversial to suggest that other groups of people who are perhaps viewed by some to lack self-control that's obviously not supported necessarily by medical evidence Is there any concern that, and and, you know, obviously some people will be able to stop their bad habits simply by trying to improve themselves uh, without medicine. Is there a a concern about medicating masses of people for these kinds of problems? Yeah, don't get me started on this. I I get quite frustrated by this. People go, oh, we treat them and then they stop the medicine and they'll just put the weight back on. No one says that uh, some with asthma, we give asthma medication too. Oh, well, we stop the asthma medicine, the asthma comes back. Or patients with HIV and they're on antiretrovirals, or if we stop them, uh, the HIV reemerges. You know, this is obesity stigma and this is stigma in society, which is unfortunately extremely prevalent against people with obesity and also people with addiction. Obesity and addiction is a brain disorder. It is not anything to do really with being weak-willed. There are biological reasons why people put on weight, very strong genetic reasons why people put on weight. There are biological reasons why when we attempt to diet, the body has a whole system which basically try and defend the body weight and, and increase appetite, often subconsciously. Most diets and lifestyle changes are not effective 
in the long term. People put on weight. So what are we supposed to do? Just have people who have obesity and obesity-related complications, who die early, get diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, increased risk of cancer. We need to treat those people. That's completely separate from societal changes to prevent obesity, which are separate. So we need drugs. And what about addiction then? I mean, is, does addiction count as the same thing? You know, is, is, is addiction a disease also? Yes. I mean, there are many people, unfortunately, who take a more sociological view of addiction, so it's really just so uh, uh, environment and things like that. No, there is good evidence of, of brain abnormalities in people with addiction. The drugs themselves can damage the brain as well and cause ongoing problems. And there is a good neurobiological basis for addiction, which we're treating. And if we had successful treatments without drugs, we would be using them. And they don't work. And we have many drugs. We have many drugs to help people stop smoking. We have licensed drugs to help people stop drinking alcohol. We use methadone to help people quit opiates. So we've been using drugs for many, many years. Unfortunately, we haven't had that many successful drugs. They certainly are available, but actually many of them also don't get out there to the relevant people. We've had bariatric surgery, which is highly successful, and we're mimicking one of the ways that bariatric surgery works by giving these hormone drugs. Mm. And what would you say to those who have concerns over the fact that the major clinical trials into these new GLP-1s are being done by the drug companies who are clearly in a, a race to cash in on, on what's going to be a huge blockbuster? Well, we have drug companies and we need drug companies. I mean, the, the, the trials are incredibly expensive. We cannot afford as uh, academic clinicians to run trials, billions of pounds to run trials. The origin of the knowledge about GLP-1 came from academic institutions, including my own, Imperial College London, who were some of the first researchers in the world to give these GLP-1 drugs to humans as infusions, like I'm doing with other drugs, and we'll discuss that in a moment. We, these early stage studies often come out of academia and, and hospitals. But when you want to do a long-term study in large numbers of people, it is very expensive. And so we need the pharmaceutical industry to do that. We also need the pharmaceutical industry to develop better drugs to make them more effective and last longer so that we can give, you know, once weekly injections instead of twice daily injections. So we need the drug companies and they invest large amounts of money in them. The drug companies are supportive, they're on our side and we need them. But there is, you know, that that, that does leave us vulnerable to bias in the studies, I suppose, doesn't it? But, but that's the whole of medicine. Yeah, there is no drug that gets to market without some drug company involved. We need drug companies. Obviously, there are issues around you know, marketing and cost and all the rest of it, but we need drunk companies to develop drugs. My patients in my clinic, I'm crying out to give them the gaze. For many of my patients, I don't have another treatment for them at the moment. We have very few drugs for obesity. That have I, can, I can see why, though, that people are queasy about the idea of something that's being so... <sighs> There's a huge amount of hype around this. And I understand that there is, you know, things have improved. However, I think that, for instance, with the Sackler scandal and the OxyContin situation, that, that we saw exactly how nefarious drug companies can be. And that's where the criticism comes yeah, from. I, 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 it was shocking what, what went on in Sackler. I mean, that was a while ago. I, I think drug companies have changed. I mean, the whole bit of... Pretty but, recent, actually. And we're still living yeah, with the after yeah, effects, but, but, aren't but, but, we? But the, whole, the, whole, the whole different thing is that I mean, you know, I mean, so many people died, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, 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 yeah. But we're not talking about people dying dying with uh, geopolitics. I mean, sort of and are dying as we speak. <laughs> you've got to have doctors who are knowledgeable about 
the drugs who are running the trials and are talking about it. And I know very few, if any, doctors who run obesity clinics, who have used these drugs for diabetes for many years, who are not in favor of their use. I advocate for my patients. My patients need these drugs. I think there will be a benefit. We, we are cautious. We have to be cautious in their use. They have to be used appropriately. I don't believe they should be used remotely by remote pharmacies. They should not be used by those who do not have a medical need for them, and that is the problem. But that's about regulating that end of the spectrum, not disallowing the access to the drugs for those who need them. And my many of my patients are crying out for treatments that work for their obesity. We've had obesity drugs, uh, many obesity drugs that we've tried for many years. Some have been successful. Uh, some have had to be withdrawn because of side effects. The great thing about the GLP-1-based drugs is, by and large, they are staying pretty safe. We've uh, used them for many, many years, and there seems to be little evidence of any signal of any serious concerns. Obviously, we need always need longer-term data, but we've seen lower risks of death, lower cancer, lower heart disease, etc. There's also evidence that these GLP-1-based drugs have even additional benefits in reducing inflammation. They're now being trialed for Alzheimer's. They're being trialed for fatty liver disease, and they may have extra anti-inflammatory agents. They seem generally a good drug, and their side effect profile, which does exist, actually seems relatively good, with no serious adverse events reported in most of the trials. So I'm very present. No, you're absolutely. Your 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 point is clear, um, and uh, you know it sounds like uh, we'll be coming back to this this subject uh, again and again if it has so many wide uses. Doctor Tony Goldson, thank you so much for finding time to join us. All right, thanks. I think another reason that people are quite queasy about this is because diet pills have a pretty bad wrap. So maybe it was slightly unfair for me to do a comparison with OxyContin. It's 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 got nothing to do with uh, opioids, obviously, but you know certainly there's quite a, a checkered history with diet pills causing all kinds of problems. Some of them were based on amphetamines mm. and they caused heart problems. Others that affected the way the brain worked caused suicidal thoughts and all kinds of other and were not nearly as effective as the companies claimed as well in practice that's true so you can see why people are suspicious next on the line we have someone who is is very opposed to diet pills and and the pharma industry that that revolves around trying to make people lose weight dr ashalami Dr. Lamy, thanks very much for finding some time to join us. We're talking today about semaglutide and the suggestions being floated by some patients and experts that it could have wider benefits in treating addiction that some people have found that they have quit smoking or drinking, gambling, compulsive shopping, even nail biting while taking this medicine. Now, I know that you've had quite serious concerns about the way that the research into semaglutide has been conducted. Would you please outline a few of those concerns? Right. Well, first of all, I'm not surprised that they're doing this. They sold it as a weight loss drug, soon found out from their own research that it doesn't work on weight loss. So... Wait, wait, hold on. I'm going to have to stop you already. I thought it in the trials, it led to around 20% weight loss in the majority of patients. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, 
that's if you're not paying attention to what actually happened in the trials. First of all, they had to go on a diet before they started taking it. And then what was really interesting is that about 10 months into taking the medication, they started regaining weight. Within eight months, whilst on the medication, they'd regained 15% of the weight that they'd lost. So theoretically speaking, it would be possible to regain all of the weight that you lost on semaglutide within about five years if you were to keep taking it. Uh, obviously, we don't have enough evidence yet. So it doesn't actually work for weight loss, only temporarily. I'm going to have to put a health warning on that. When I looked at the evidence, I know that there were some arms in which they switched people onto the placebo uh, who had been taking it and then they gained the weight. But uh-huh. the people that continued to take it stayed at that lower weight, according to the graphs that I looked at. Right. Yeah, obviously you didn't look at all the trials because there was a study that looked at them for two years rather than one. And if you look at the two-year trial, you'll see that they regained 15% of the weight that they lost whilst in the second year of that medication, obviously while still taking it because they took it for two whole years. So you obviously just didn't read the trial that I'm talking about. The one where they swapped to placebo, obviously there was a very dramatic weight gain. But that's a different trial. I'm talking about the one where they were actually on the medication, that'd be step five, when they're on the medication for two years and they start regaining weight. Even in step one, they started regaining weight, actually, but they stopped it a year. If you go forward two years, you'll notice it's about 15% in eight months. So let me get this right. They lose 20% of body weight and then they regain 15% of that weight loss. No, they don't lose 20% of the good. That's, that's a massive overprediction. They lose 12% more than the placebo. Because don't forget, they are on a diet as well. So they lose about 12, 13% more than the placebo alone. And of that weight that they've lost, they regain 15%. It's not 20% weight loss. That's an exaggeration. You don't really see that. Maybe you see it with bariatric surgery, but not, any, not certainly with this medication. So you're saying that the, the 20% figure is an amalgamation of the weight they would have lost anyway, plus some extra because of semaglutide? Yeah, and then there's a nice big rounding up from about 17.5 to 20, but okay. Right, I mean, yeah. rounding up is 20, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, no, I, I see your point, I see your point. But, uh, you know, I mean, patients seem to be evangelical about this. Well, well, that's just the patients that you've been talking to. Of course, if you speak to the other patients who are actually really upset about the fact that they were sold a weight loss drug that didn't actually last for more than a year and they've regained a lot of the weight back, you'll find that they don't love it. And in fact, about 65% of them develop side effects as well. So lots of people say, what, so I'm going to be sick the entire time I'm taking this and you're telling me it's not going to work long term? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. We don't have any data beyond two years, but even at the sort of the nadir, the peak of weight loss is between 10 months and one year and you will start regaining after that there is no question about that no one was able to maintain all of the weight that they lost over those two years so if I were a patient that had been sold a weight loss drug and I had all these horrible side effects and then after a year I started regaining the weight I'd be slightly disappointed as well Mm. Really, you know, considering that these people will have probably tried dieting and we know from research that people tend to end up heavier than they started after trying a diet at the two-year mark or three-year mark, then presumably this is still more successful than that. I mean, these people, I'm assuming you're talking about fat people. I do so love being called these people. That's lovely. Um, But when you're talking about these people, yes, we are disappointed that people keep telling us to diet because we know that weight loss doesn't work. We also know that weight loss doesn't improve our health one single bit ever. 
So, uh, yeah, the only reason we're doing it is because we're either being forced to do it by our doctors or because people like you keep calling us these people and we need to... No, hang on. I, I let that one slide first of all, but I, I, I take umbrage with that. You're you're finding something pejorative in something that was simply meant to indicate. Sure, are you, um, are you, and and <laughs> when we were when we were talking last time, I've got absolutely I've got absolutely nothing negative to say about the patients who are on semaglutide. Sure, sure, because so, they're fat people who are trying to get thin, and a lot of people respect fat people who are trying to get thin. But I think it, you know, as a fat person who advocates for fat, people, no, I've just got nothing against them. I'm just saying I've got nothing against them. I mean, I mean, of course, why why would I? Of course, how wonderful that you have nothing against us. That's fantastic. We always love to hear that. I think you know you. Well, you're not on semaglutide, are you? Uh, no, I'm a fat person who isn't on semaglutide. I suppose you do have something. That's, <laughs> I've got no. I've got nothing against. I've got, I wouldn't. I wouldn't keep asking you on the show if I had anything against you. That's, I think that, that's true. I, 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 I have I the opposite. I have the opposite of having something against you. But go on. Go on. Okay, but perhaps I'm being a bit cheeky here, but what I, the point I'm trying to make here is the point about stigma. And this is massively stigmatizing. This conversation is massively stigmatizing. This conversation and the conversation around semaglutide is actually making life a lot harder for people with bigger bodies. And that's the thing. And I want to point out, you asked me a question, I never really answered it. The question was, what are the issues that I have with Novo Nordisk and the way they conduct trials? The issue that I have is they have bought everyone off. I'm sorry, but the reason you're even talking about it is because of a new PR stunt that is paid for by Novo Nordic. It is transparent. They're not even trying to hide it. They even got in trouble for some of the ethics because they are training doctors without even being upfront about it. They've been kicked off by the ABPR. They know they're dodgy, and yet we continue to give them the media and the attention that they want, that they can continue driving profit. They only care about their shareholders. This came from initially what kicked all this conversation off was an article in The Atlantic. Are you saying that you know that it was placed by PRs for Novo Nordisk? I've never even seen the article in The Atlantic, so I couldn't say for sure. But I know the way that Novo Nordisk is behaving. I was already aware that they were paying lots and lots of money to psychiatric hospitals for quite some time now. I've been, I've been following them. So I already knew that they were paying psychiatric hospitals for, for all sorts of issues. And you've got to ask yourself, Novo Nordisk who doesn't make any psychiatric drugs, why are they doing it? It was only a matter of time before they brought up dementia. We were waiting for it. This is all part of their drive to sell their drug, which, you know, is capitalism. Who am I to stand against capitalism? But the problem is you're harming fat people in the process and you will continue to harm us in the process of your PR because people keep talking about this weight loss drug as if losing weight is actually beneficial to anybody. It's not. It is harmful and it doesn't have any positive long-term outcomes or benefits. It is just a way to stigmatise and harm fat people and make money out of them because that's ultimately what this company is trying to do. What about addiction? <laughs> what about addiction? There's no evidence that it works yet. So, they, again, at what cost? Have, have we got any relevant data as to... But do you not think... At what cost? Do you not think... Yeah, no, absolutely, I, I hear you. There, there, there isn't proof. But would you say that, that your concerns about the drug are so great yeah. that you don't think... You think this is dead in the water oh, already? No, it's not, dead in, it's there not isn't... dead in the water. It's no very Nordisk. I don't believe it's dead in the water. What I'm saying is we still don't know the cost or the risks of giving this drug for weight loss. Because you see, what they want you to do is they want you to buy their drug that costs a lot of money, not just for one year, not just for two years, but for many, many years. And we don't 
even have enough evidence as to what this drug does to a healthy pancreas for more than two years for weight loss, let alone for anything else. And my concern is that knowing what we know about the insulin pathway, this drug has the potential to cause all sorts of problems with the insulin pathway, with the pancreas, with insulin resistance, and potentially type 2 diabetes down the line. They have never addressed this, and they won't address this, but we need data for at least 10, 15 years before they, we can even make Do they not have that for, for diabetes? I mean, it's been given for really, for quite a while to type oh, 2 diabetics. That's, that's, yes, the type 2 diabetics don't have what I would say I call a healthy pancreas. I'm talking about the non-diabetics out there that are on this drug now. We don't have any evidence that goes back beyond 2021. They've not got enough data, and that is really terrifying. Doctor, why do you think the researchers involved in this drug and who have been looking at this drug aren't talking about these worries? Because they get paid by Novo Nordisk. Look at the conflict of interest at the bottom of each of these studies. It's how much more obvious do we need to get? Look at the conflicts of interest which are there. Every I think that's quite. I think that's quite a big claim to say that researchers are putting their patients' lives at risk because they're being paid by a drug company. That's quite a because, big claim. You know, is there, there is a conflict of interest, and we report on them all the time. Sorry, but why, why making that next that? step to say that that someone would, yeah. you know, obfuscate willfully or even lie yeah. due to that conflict and of, of interest. Course, is, of course, that's, that's never happened before. I mean, we didn't see it with say. I don't know, Purdue and Oxycontin. We haven't seen it with a whole host of drugs where we found out that doctors were being deliberately withholding it. Oh, it's never happened before in the history of medicine. I can't say that these particular individuals have. I'm saying it's just not that difficult. It's not that much of a stretch when we know it has happened over and over again. And if you look at the opioid crisis that is happening in the United States of America, that is part and parcel because of a a few doctors who were paid off by a drug company to lie. So let's not say it's never happened. It's happened many, many times. And I'd like to say as a doctor that, yes, you know, most of us have a pretty decent moral compass, but not all of us. And it's not necessarily that they're literally being paid to lie, but more that they have a lot of confirmation bias and are not willing to look be, look at the glaringly obvious problems because their bills are being paid by a company. And I'm not talking a little bit of money, I'm talking a lot of money by a company they don't want to upset. So, yeah, no, I'm willing to say it and prove me wrong. Well, I'm not sure whether it will ever come out or perhaps it will. And let, let's really hope that, um, you know, patients aren't harmed in, in the same way that they were by the, the Sackler family and that, that scandal. Dr. Ashalami, thank you so much for finding some time to join us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, listening to that made me a bit uncomfortable because I don't think that's what the data shows at all. As far as I'm aware patients, as long as they stay on the drug, continue to keep the weight off. I mean, the problem is if they take, stop taking well, the drug. Apparently, we weren't looking at the, the study in the right way. I'm not sure how exactly how I was supposed to, to look at it. But but yes, I mean, if you're on the drug, you retain the weight loss. And some of the medicines, you see a small percentage mm. weight gain. And what you see is when people stop taking the drug, that's, that's when you gain weight. But, you know, I mean, I will delve into maybe... I am looking in, in the wrong place and you are too. Yeah, so. it's it's entirely possible. It just it just feels strange to have and it's obviously great to have a diverse opinions, but also this is a drug which has been so widely 
praised and acclaimed for what it could possibly do for people who are overweight and want to lose weight. I admit that maybe not everyone who's overweight wants to lose weight, but many do. And this seems to work for them. And it, it seems strange to suggest that it doesn't when so much of the evidence proves that it does. I think perhaps, as I said before, that there is an ideological opposition to a drug that affects weight in this way. It is a contentious issue, isn't mm. it? Totally. And, you know, I mean, there are similar ideological issues. For instance, Dr. Goldstone mentioned uh, HIV medicines. There's been similar criticisms of the idea that the NHS would pay for HIV prevention medicines when they could be paying for medicines that would prevent, you know, rare genetic diseases in small children. So, you know, which instantly put this kind of Mm. this moral question on what should you be medicated for? What counts as something worthy of being treated? Should we all just have much more willpower because no one blames someone for having a heart attack, really, on the whole. I think we, we don't hate people having strokes. But certainly the idea of, of helping cocaine addicts who are malnourished uh, because they don't eat, you know, I mean, it's it's not the most sympathetic of populations. But it's a disease. It is, it's a disease that should be treated in the same way that obesity is a disease so, that should be treated. So you believe in the disease model? A hundred percent. I think that people's brains are wired in a certain way which makes them very difficult to give up these destructive patterns Mm. and if there's anything we can do to help these people no one wants to go broke because they can't stop gambling no one wants to destroy their liver through alcohol these aren't rational decisions and if there's anything you can do to help those people then we should do it as long as it's safe and it's been trialed by independent researchers and also the the idea that the drug companies have something to gain from this, of course they have something to gain from it, but they, they are designing drugs and the drugs are then being tested by academics. I mean, that's how every single drug works. That's how mm. the COVID jabs work. But I also remember just after the, the vaccine rollout, there was loads of news articles in left-wing papers like The Guardian saying Pfizer has made a billion pounds in profit. You know, how could they do that in a global health crisis? I think if you create something which cures disease you're entitled to loads of money. You know, I mean, if you have a drug which can cure addiction, it can cure obesity, make people healthier, make people happier, you're entitled to make money doing that. Mm -hmm. And as long as all the steps are completed along the way in a legal and safe manner, I couldn't care less how much money Nova Nordisk makes from this drug. So what's convinced you that addiction is a disease? What? That's such a hard question. You've always said you don't have an addictive personality. Yeah, I don't think I do. I, in fact, maybe that I don't want to base, base this on anecdotes, but I, I do personally see it in myself in that I have, when I was younger, taken up smoking because other people around me did it. I got bored of it and forgot to smoke. Yeah. Were, uh, it's the same with vaping. We know we talked about vaping last week and how... How the, you got me hooked well, on vaping. Exactly, the difference between <laughs> our personalities when it comes to vaping. You yeah. took, I gave you a vape Why and I will that? regret it forever because it's <laughs> been a blight on your life. You had one vape and then you were hooked and I caught you around the back of the office smoking on a vape. I had like 10 vapes at home after that same story. I barely touched them. I taste them to get a nice flavor from them. I took maybe one on a night out once, but I just, I only smoke them for fun. That's not because I'm a stronger person than you. It's just because no, our brains are wired differently. Wired differently. 
I have more of the nicotine receptors, obviously. Clearly, yeah. And that's not your fault and no one should stigmatise you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. You can read all about this and a whole lot more in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on The Mail app. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.